You're listening to Drinking Socially, the official Untapped podcast. Your weekly look into what's happening in the Untapped community and the world of beer. I'm Kyle. And I'm Tim. Drinking Socially is released every Wednesday morning and can be found at podcast.untapped.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. I've already dug into that sandwich. Uh, why do we have sandwiches today and not beer? What's going on? Uh, well, we have sandwiches and beer because we needed to try this pairing out here. Um, this week, we are actually opening up Pickle from Urban Artifact. It is a dill pickle goza. So this is one we've talked about before. We talked about an article in episode 17 about the release of this beer from Urban Artifact in Cincinnati. Um, I threw that article in for you because I know how much you love this whole interesting food and beer combos that Pairing, are out there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, this is a sour goza. It is 4.3 ABV. Uh, it's actually described as a wheat beer with a sour finish. Pickle is a traditional German goza brewed with 1,000 pounds of cucumber, 2 pounds of fresh dill, Nine pounds of sea salt and one and a quarter pounds of coriander per 30 barrel batch. That is a lot. I mean, I've made this joke before, I'm sure of it, but you could scare a lot of cats with this, I'm sure. Oh, yes. The whole uh, internet craze of scaring um, scaring the cats with yeah. the, what was it, pickles or cucumbers? Uh, cucumbers. Yeah. Yeah, you don't, you don't, you don't want them to be uh, soured already. <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> Get the juice everywhere, right? Yeah, exactly. And so you, you mentioned the sandwiches. Um, I was thinking it might be fun to try out uh, this dill pickle goza with some sort of traditional deli sandwich. So we went up to Bay Cities, uh, which is here in Santa Monica. Great deli. My first time I mean, going your there. Your first time going there, you should be having the Godmother. Okay. Because that's the best sandwich they make. I, I'm willing to eat too. But we went with the, we went with the good traditional pastrami uh, to see how that stacks up in terms of um, pairing with this pickle beer. Now, before we open it up, though, I do want to give a very big shout out to Brett. He's the co-founder over at Urban Artifact. Uh, word got to him via Twitter about us discussing um, the release, and he offered to send us over some of these. So that's how we actually have it. I can't say thank you enough because I'm really excited to try this and to just see how this stacks up next to a real pickle and paired with a nice salty deli sandwich. Yeah, I think Brett took your advice too in packing this and sending this to us. Uh, each one was individually packaged in a Ziploc bag with tape over the top. It was a good, good look. Oh yeah, definitely not going to lose one in transit. <laughs> All right, let's get this open and try it out. One of the interesting parts about the packaging here too is, one, I love the color. Uh, we Our whole episode last time was about packaging, and uh, we had Ryan on to discuss sort of themes and, um, and, and styles that we really liked. I think this is one that will for sure be on my list. I, I need to make sure I pay more attention to Urban Artifact and their, their label design here. But one cool part about this is they mentioned the pH of this beer on the side being 3.58. That brings me way back to like measuring the pH uh, with pH strips and trying trying to compare on a chart to like what what actual pH is this? This gets really specific. I assume this was done with a machine or chemically or something like that. Um, but or through uh, 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 what's it called? Precipitation. I love how simple the uh, can is. It's green. It's just words written really nice and clear on there. Um, the tagline across the top: sour, oh. bold, pickle. Okay. I've smelled the beer. This is so good. I yeah, grab some cups. Grab some cups. As much as I want to just go straight out of the uh the can on this one. Oh, it kind of looks it it kind of looks like pickle juice a little bit. Maybe a little darker. A little more golden. Yeah, a little more golden. Malt. I smell cucumber, I smell salt. This is 
just a, a, a fantastic sensory experience so far, and I haven't even tasted it. Cucumber. Oh, definitely so cucumber. smooth, though. Yeah. Are you kidding? Sour, tart, cu- more cucumber on the nose than, than in taste, in my opinion. You do get more beer and salt kind yep. of in the, in the taste rather than cucumber. Beer and salt, there's like a little bit of, the dill isn't as pronounced, maybe a little more on the back end, but the aftertaste is like a dill pickle, definitely. That acidity, like I get this acidity. But with a pH so low, I was actually, I'm, I was expecting a lot more salt or a lot more sour uh, taste to it. So we do have a sandwich to pair. Uh, Kyle and Post will be sure to take out all of the chewing and and full mouth sounds so that I don't trigger anyone or uh, or bother anyone who who is offended by that on podcasts. That's an interesting combo. It really is. It brings out so much sweetness yeah, in I, the beer. That's exactly what I, I'm glad. I'm glad I wasn't going crazy there. The saltiness of the pastrami and then the kind of the salty sour thing going on in the beer, it, for some reason they seem to balance out into like this sweet sort of aftertaste. It, I, I hate to say it, but it makes it almost mellow out to the point of just tasting like a wheat beer. Yeah. Um, because... My sandwich has pickles. We're eating tiny little dill gherkins. Yeah, the acidity from the actual pickles we have definitely kills a lot of what's going on in the beer. But it, it yeah. the beer itself, um, it smooths it out. It kind of mellows the the acidic aftertaste in my mouth a bit. Right, right. So it, it helps helps um, cool it almost. But it also makes me kind of crave additional salt and additional acid from the sandwich and and. I want to keep bouncing back and forth and it's, I can't imagine eating a, a cold pastrami sandwich, like a, a deli pastrami sandwich without this beer. Now it seems like this is the only way to go. Yeah. That's a very good point. Once you have a combo like this, this is like a, a Jewish rye bread too. Yeah. Um, something that it's, it's not dark. It's super it's light. Marbled. It's not marbled. It's not marbled and it's not pumper, pumpernickel either. It feels like a very smooth, good combo that balances each other out. I feel like we've said that a couple times now, but just to kind of sum up my my take on it, the beer itself on its own is pretty solid, but also combined with the rye bread and the mustard and the saltiness of the pastrami, it's a very smooth um, whole, a very smooth experience altogether. And to say that this is sour and bold, I, I do agree on its own. But it is insanely crushable, and like I just want to swig down the entire can after a, a kind of like dry bread, um, cold pastrami thing going on over here. I just I could drink this down like you would a, a seltzer water with cucumber in it. Oh like yeah, it is it is so easy drinking and so smooth. And I should say one more time, big thanks to Brett. Uh, over at Urban Artifact for sending these to us. It was really cool to be able to do this little fun pairing, um, and we greatly appreciate it. Have any of you had this one? Let us know what you thought on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram by tagging us at Untapped. All right, it's time to take a look at some of the sponsor badges that are coming up here in just a bit, it looks like. Yes, this week we actually only have one sponsored badge to tell you about. This is coming to us from our friends at Lagunitas. It is for a new addition to their one-hitter series. The badge is Lagunitas Cherry Jane Sour Ale. This You can unlock this badge by checking into one Cherry Jane Sour from Lagunitas between July 23rd and August 23rd. 
Um, this is actually a brand spanking new sweet tart ale that is packed full of Turkish delight cherry juice. That sounds incredible. I mean, it's it's fitting the theme of the month of July here for us. This is one I will for sure want to pick up and and try. Cherry can be kind of off putting for some. It can and at least here in the U.S., we have cherry flavored medicine, and so a lot of cherry flavor gets associated with like cough di- syrup, yeah. cough syrup, Dimatap. Um, but when done very well, it is so good. It's kind of g- gives you like that cherry cobbler like. Uh, baking quality to it i love i love cherry beers i don't think i've had too many but this one definitely sounds really good this one's actually fermented with lagunitas's house yeast um, plus the addition of lactobacillus and britannomyces which gives it this nice funkiness so you've got like sweetness of cherries plus the sour caused by the addition of these yeasts it sounds pretty cool yeah they they actually say in the description here on untapped an extra funky funk so Hope, hope everyone enjoys that and, uh, and enjoys getting this batch. Last week, we uh, did a design special that we had uh, our friend and colleague uh, Ryan Payne on to talk a bit about like uh, photography and beer label design. It was, I, I think, in, in my opinion, I was a part of the conversation, but I think it was a really great conversation around what's happening in the beer industry right now and how we as people even in the industry are being exposed to it both from the consumer side and like seeing the branding and stuff from the brewer side i think it was a hopefully interesting conversation uh if you haven't listened to that that is episode 20 of the podcast uh go back and download it and and we hope you enjoy it and ryan's actually going to be joining us for the rest of this show uh so sit back relax and we'll get the show going keep your arms and legs inside the podcast Yes, Ipiernas, Dentro del Podcast. Dent, dent, dentro, dentro del Train, please. <laughs> Let's move on to our Style of the Week segment and take a look at this week's feature beer style. Here's Tim with more. This week, we are going to be taking a look at the Grisette. And this one, Ryan, is actually... Extra, extra, drink all about it. <laughs> Grisette night. Good oh, oh, Come sorry. on, Pat. sorry, sorry, sorry. Stay with it. I know you can. <laughs> uh, this one. So we have someone here to laugh at our jokes. This is very good. This I love finally. this. Uh, this one is actually inspired um, by your wife, Ryan. Uh, she had mentioned this on her Instagram and I saw it and uh, now we're going to cover it. She'll be very happy. Excellent. Like many farmhouse styles, the story of the Grisette has changed significantly over time due to the lack of record keeping from European brewers. There's little written information on early grisettes, so little in fact that there's only one small monograph on the subject from the second half of the 19th century, but but even in it, there is only a little and sometimes contradictory information to be found. Um, the rest is bits and pieces found in old trade journals and in general brewing literature, but overall, there's very little information known about this style. Um, it means that no one really knows what a grisette is or was, but... You see almost every brewery making one nowadays. I think it was a little bit about like they knew what it should taste like uh, because there were so many people at that time drinking this style, at least as a part of the working class. And so when you got one, you could identify it. 
I don't think at that point there were many people even writing this stuff down because things were moving so quickly. They were trying to meet demand and, and stuff like that. It's just uh, literally just knowing what it was like and just kind of shooting for that taste as right. opposed to following a, the directions of a, an ingredient list. Like we said, more brewing at that point was more art than science, I think. And while there was sort of these chemical processes happening and it was like cooking, cooking is also sort of an art, right? It, it's about knowing what people want and meeting that demand. And it's, it's part business. It's part art. It's kind of somewhere in between. And so keeping records of that stuff at that point, at least for the working class, was not something that they were going to do. In his book, Farmhouse Ales, Phil Markowski offers a summary of the historic grisette. He says, oral accounts of those who remember the old grisettes say they were low alcohol, light bodied, kind of saison like golden ales with no great distinction which is really interesting to hear that doesn't sound all that interesting to me it's like shrug emoji beer exactly and this means that grisettes brewed in america today are really more of an interpretation rather than a direct copy of the european beer style um, brewed during the late 19th century all right so here's what we do know while saisons are historically rooted in the farm grisettes are inherently rooted in industry and in the industrial revolution Similar to what Kyle was mentioning, it was really like a working class kind of thing. They were brewed for miners and the... M-I-N-E-R-S, by the way, not uh, <laughs> not not like young folks. Yes, the, the working miners down in the mines. <laughs> Basically, the, the miners of South Belgium, which uh, until the World Wars was one of the centers for the Industrial Revolution in Europe. Um, this is the same region that Cezanne's come from, and at the time... There were likely significant similarities between the two beers, which, I mean, they kind of describe, you know, that golden color, very Saison-like, light-bodied, low alcohol. That makes a lot of sense right there. Um, both beers were intended to refresh the workers and would have been lower strength and uh, lower alcohol beers. So they sort of served the same purpose anyway. They were supposed to be kind of refreshing, kind of like this is lunchtime beer. This is This is something where you can... Uh, drink it uh, to the point of, you know, kind of wrapping up your whole day. And it served that same purpose for farmers, I believe, yeah, for if the Saison. If you, if you go back to the episode where we covered the history of the Saison, um, it's a seasonal beer that was really intended for seasonal farm workers uh, during the hot times um, so that they could refresh themselves and cool off. So same basic idea. One seems like a country beer and one seems like a city beer. As workers started liking these styles and as brewing techniques became more industrialized, this meant beers then started trending towards cleaner fermentation and the regular use of certain ingredients rather than more variable recipes. Uh, with high demand, beers began being sold sooner and it led to brewers wanting to produce beers that were ready to be released sooner. And this meant aging was really less uh, of a primary need. Industrialization also meant malting grains became easier, meaning paler malts could be used. Um, brewers could begin kilning at a surprisingly low temperature of 110 degrees Fahrenheit, um, which intended mostly to dry the grains. So it didn't impart a lot of roastiness, if any. It was just sort of like, let's get these kind of malted a tad. Yeah, exactly. Let's, let's throw them in there, get them malted as little as we can, and then get them into the brewing process so we can make beer for all those workers who need to have something to refresh themselves after a long day in those coal mines. 
Historically, fermentation took place first in the kettle, then in barrels, and the barrels were regularly topped with mixed beer and yeast recovered from the first stages of fermentation. Very um, organic, very reused, um, not as clean and sanitary as we would expect for, you know, modern breweries. Um, these days, brewers aim for a pale, golden, dry, effervescent, kind of crisply bitter beer using lightly malted wheat, saison yeast, uh, bretomyces, and barrel fermentation. And sometimes barrel fermentation, I think, too. It's They're trying to embody this sort of classic flavor, but with modern techniques. Lots of the industrialization at that time, I think, helped to standardize and and make each of these different batches not so different so that they weren't having to mix them kind of like we were talking about sours right where you take sort of the old one and the new one so that it's not this you know super old funkiness mixed with or super old funkiness on its own it's got this kind of balance between uh really young beer and kind of aged beer modern grisette is not like that now Got it. And it seems like you're likely to see a wide range of beers within this style. Um, they can range from kind of the hop forward character to oak sour tartness to the classic kind of refreshing light beers that it was intended to be um, when it was first introduced. And one of the uh, breweries that we didn't talk about in our whole design segment is uh, Hill Farmstead. They've got a grisette that I think is number two right now on the top uh, 150 different uh, grisettes that we have on Untapped. Their branding is super consistent, very nice. I, I, I like Hill Farmstead a lot. But their grisette called Clara is on here and rates a 415 with 7,600 ratings. But it comes in low, 4% ABV. So like really easy drinking, probably very pale, very light, no IBUs. Sounds like a really interesting beer. Our friend John Holzer from the Four Brewers Podcast is back with some great homebrewing tips and tricks for you. Here's John with more. Hey everyone, John here from Four Brewers and I'm back with today's homebrew tip. Today we're going to talk about brewing a batch of beer in a very quick way. And what I mean by that is uh, if you're a home brewer, you know that it takes typically two weeks to a month to finish a batch of beer. But sometimes you have only a week to get a batch of beer done and it is possible to brew a batch of beer in five to seven days. And I'm going to tell you how right now. Now, disclaimer, you shouldn't do this all the time for your beer. Beer does take time. You don't want to rush the process if you don't have to. But if you're in a pinch and you absolutely need to brew a batch of beer and have a finished beer grain to glass in five to seven days, this is what you want to do. First, you want to brew a low gravity beer. So anything between 1035 and 1045 original gravity, that's what you want to shoot for. You want to choose a simple style. You want to choose simple grains and you want to choose a simple hop schedule. Just keep everything simple. You're going to want to mash the lower temperature, typically between 146 and 149. That way you get highly, highly fermentable sugars in your beer. So the whole idea here is to keep the gravity low and the fermentability high. The next thing you'll want is highly robust yeast. And so what I mean by that is you want to choose a strain of yeast that's going to just chew through those sugars, finish up nice and quick and clean. Kalel usually does that pretty well, uh, White Labs WLP001. A lot of times if you're really pressed for time and you don't have time to make a yeast starter, you can use dry yeast in a pinch. Just make sure you rehydrate the dry yeast because you want that yeast to start eating that sugar as soon as you put it into your wort. Again, the idea here is to have highly fermentable wort and a lot of yeast cells to eat that wort. 
You don't want to overpitch, but you want to make sure you pitch enough yeast that it can just chew through those sugars. I mentioned earlier that it's best to use a yeast that is highly flocculent, and that's because you're going to crash this as soon as it's done fermenting. You want to start cranking that beer down. You want to start turning the temperature down. You want all that stuff to start flocking out, everything to fall out of that beer. Ideally, this would take 24 hours. Now, in the case of this beer, we're shooting for a five to seven day window. We're not that concerned about turbidity and having a clear beer and having everything fall out because we can still keg this beer and have stuff fall out in the keg. You don't want it to be full of you know floaties and yeast floating around, but you do want to have everything drop out to a point where you can keg this beer, which leads us to our last step, kegging. Kegging is the easiest way to serve a beer. You can put the beer in a keg, you can attach some CO2, turn it up to 30 PSI and shake that keg for a minute or two and let it sit for about an hour at 30 PSI. Now, ideally you'd let it carbonate for a few days at a lower PSI and you get a better carbonation and it would just be better overall, but we're going for speed here and that's what matters. So there you have it. Just to recap, you want to go for a lower gravity beer, use simple sugars that are highly, highly fermentable, pitch a good amount of yeast that can just chew through those sugars. When the beer's done fermenting, crash that beer, get everything to fall out, keg the beer, carbonate it, boom, you're good to go. Typically when I brew a beer like this, I shoot for a Saison style. Saisons typically finish very dry. They ferment very quickly depending on the yeast that you use. And you can get a really good beer in five to seven days if it's a Saison with some character. So there you have it. That's how you can take a beer from grain to glass in five to seven days. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. You can catch more from John and the whole Four Brewers crew over at fourbrewers.com or subscribe to their show wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's look at some of the interesting beer articles that we found this week. Our first article comes from fstoppers.com. This is five tips for better beer photographs. I thought this was very appropriate for the conversations that we had early on about beertography and uh, design. Um, this article runs through some really interesting tips that I honestly hadn't even thought about. Internally, I should say, we've had lots of conversations, I think between the three of us, on how to take a photo, how to do like merch photos, glass photos, beer photos. It's difficult. It is so, so, so difficult. When do you pour? When, like, where, what is your lighting setup? Are you indoors, outdoors, light behind it, light in front of it? It can be very fun and creative, but also incredibly frustrating at the same time. Oh, yeah. And some of the photos that you take, Kyle, I'm, I mean, at your home, they're fantastic. The lighting that you have. I mean, granted, the background, sure, it's like a blurry bookcase, but... <laughs> You get some. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting called out. <laughs> no, no, all right. You hey, take, listen. You, no, I, I I got to level 100, and you, I just like whatever. No, whatever. no. You're. You, I should point out that a lot of Kyle's photos are featured on the Untapped Instagram because of just how f- amazing they are. But I, I mean, it's a plus. Like the the light that you get. And the way that you can blur and focus is great. Um, I built a little white background for a beer photo um, account that I have and um, lighting it up and touching it up. It's such a pain um, to do all that. And it's not all that exciting. I mean, it focuses more on the label, but like it's it just the amount that goes into it. And really, I just throw it on my counter. I don't even go. I don't have lighting. I don't do anything. Well, and I think with the thing that you've done with that, though, is you're consistent with the look of it so that uh, anyone following that account sort of like knows what to expect. Sure. Yes. Yeah. I guess that's, that's what, that's one of the things it might have going for, which, which <laughs> I, I think helps kind of tell the story of the beer rather than like focusing on a lot of the other parts of it. Right. It's interesting to talk about how other folks 
are photographing beer because it's it's something you don't see much as a casual beer drinker. You'll see folks maybe just taking photographs on the counter at a tap room, but you won't see uh, like a magazine setup, right? Like a hot mag. They their setups are incredible. They have multiple people helping out. It's it's very interesting. But on to the article. So obviously you need a camera and lights, um, and the author is just assuming that if you're reading this, you already have those, um, but he goes on to discuss some of the other things that you might need. Uh, the first thing up is a styling kit, which basically includes some sort of a spraying device, like a spray bottle, um, and th- within the spray bottle, you put a 50-50 mix of glycerin and water. Mm-hmm. The mixture gives a warm beer the chilled look. Basically, uh, it it stays in place unlike the condensation from a beer that's in the fridge that will drip. So it kind of, these these uh, sugar, I guess, if you would, glycerin, right, sticks to the outside of the glass or the packaging and provides like this, it's hot in the room, but the beer's cold look. Yeah, yeah it gives it that like condensation chill yeah, look. Yeah, ex- exactly, you exactly. Um, he also says that you're going to want a wooden chopstick. It's great for stirring the beer. Um, apparently there's an enzyme in the wood that helps create fizzy, um, the fizzy lager kind of nice foamy head thing going on. Huh? Yeah. I did not know that. That was really interesting. That is really cool. I, I mean like a takeout chopstick, I guess. That's what it sounds like. Okay. All right. Yeah, that is really cool. I've, I feel like we haven't done a ton with our merch photography, uh, but when we have photographed beer, that was one of the biggest frustrations is having a perfect head. And then taking five shots that aren't good, trying to get the one shot that is good. And by that time, you have no head and it doesn't look like a good beer photo. So that's uh, that's a perfect tip, which we should probably utilize ourselves. (laughs) Yeah. Another another piece of the styling kit that he mentions is you should have some masking tape. Now, why do you need masking tape? I thought this was really cool. Um, Basically, you'll use the masking tape um, to tape off the top of the glass before you spritz it with the glycerin water mixture. Um, because you're not going to want that frosted look up where the head occurs because the head's not going to cause the frostiness on the glass. I was thinking the tape was for my mouth so I wouldn't drink, drink the it. beer during <laughs> during that whole process. But uh, yeah, that is that is one of the pros and cons yeah, of the whole thing. That's the thing, though, with the beers that we tend to drink. I think we're better off like faking the look of beer with the with the can itself than like actually pouring out your lovely, lovely uh, eleven dollar can from Highland Park, which I'm sad I'm not going to photograph now that I opened it here. (laughs) The next tip here is time. They basically suggest that you set aside two hours for one image. I'm sure our significant others can probably attest to the fact that it probably seems like two hours when we're taking a photo of our beer, whether at a brewery or at home. It's like, are you kidding me? I'm ready for dinner. What is going on? (laughs) This is true. The idea is to take your time getting that first shot because then it'll save you on hours of trying to retouch after the fact. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is, I think if you're on a tripod as well, you are taking multiple photos and maybe compositing later. I know I've I've watched a couple folks do that as well, where you're getting, you know, most of the shadows and stuff from w- one scene and then you're actually pouring the beer in another and then you're sort of mixing multiple uh, either exposures or or different uh, parts of the scene together. It'd be a lot of compositing, you know. Yeah. Yeah. The third tip here is lots of beer. I mean, I like that for anything, but obviously for here, um, 
basically uh scott who's the author of this he thought that he would need maybe two pints of beer just to get the right shot but in reality he ended up wasting around six pints that's a lot of beer that's i i'm sure listeners are cringing right now yeah six pints obviously once you've perfected your skills you're gonna need less beer but the first time you're gonna do this you should definitely buy extra and worst case scenario you invite some friends over to help you finish it off yeah or uh anytime you go to uh photograph a hazy ipa just grab a 18 pack of kern's nectar and you're <laughs> you're set pour some milk and some orange juice into a glass that's what i'm saying <laughs> it won't smell great but it'll look it'll it. look stellar <laughs> uh the fourth suggestion here is to have a polarizer photographing glass with studio lights um is a recipe for disaster you'll be plagued with reflections and glare and having both lens polarizers and also polarizing gels for your flash, um, they're going to help you control those issues. Yep. I can attest to this. Uh, when I've shot with my DSLR at home, polarizer is absolutely necessary, especially for reflections, not just off a of glass, but off a table, off of anything that's coming straight from your main light source onto, and, and especially ambient light, onto the flat surface that the beer is on. It's rough. It'll blow out a photo so easily. Yeah. This this last tip, I thought this one was really fun and interesting. Um, basically, step six is you should have a pipe. Um, once you have everything set up, you don't want to move the glass because, you know, smudging that, that frosted look that you've got is just not going to be good. Having to redo all that, that's just going to be a pain, especially each time you need to change out the beer. So instead, you can use a length of pipe and a bowl to siphon the beer into it without touching the glass. So basically, you're just going to siphon the beer out of the glass using a tube or a pipe, and then you can refill it from there. So you don't even have to touch it. I'm thinking like a turkey baster, maybe. You, you could do that, too. Or like a, you know, something to kind of just put in the top. Suck and it up. <laughs> but listen, all you need is a straw. You could do that too hey, if you're going to drink it. Hey, there I'll you siphon go. the beer out myself. Are you just going to you're going to hang out over like imagine it's on a table in the middle of a white room and Ryan's just leaning over with a giant straw a twirly straw? Yeah. I, I I'm available as a beer siphoner. Okay. <laughs> Noted. Well, let me know. Email. I I think the other part of this that would be great. I mean if if you're really doing all of these things, you may as well just I'm going to go shoot it in a walk-in freezer. I'm going to go I'm going to like Take every precaution to make sure that this beer stays fresh and cool and tastes good so that I can have it when the shoot is done. That's the whole point for me. This is true. I wish I had room to have a setup like this because me too. that would be spectacular. Yeah, me too. I should mention that when you guys came down uh, to Wilmington and we were over at New Anthem, um, I'll be the significant other and say that you did take too long to shoot photos, but they were beautiful. And after you were done... I downloaded all of your apps and tried to do it myself. I'm much worse at it than you guys are. Anyway, you guys take beautiful beer, beautiful beer photos. These are all great tips. Um, oh, shots. You, you, you should mention too, though, that so a thing that you guys use is Snapseed from Google. Oh, yes. Uh, that's, people, if people are looking to take good mobile photos, that is a perfect tool. If you are looking to touch up, um, quickly touch up some photos that you take, Snapseed um, is an excellent app. Kyle turned me on to that one. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Saves me some Photoshop time, honestly. Like I could not, I can't with like taking the memory card for my DSLR, plugging it into my laptop, opening up Photoshop, making the edits, then pulling it into untapped. It was just it, it, too much work, honestly, for 
at that point, my beer's warm. Yeah, and I was trying to use um, I was trying to use Lightroom uh, for iOS, and it was okay, but I couldn't get things as the way that I wanted. And at times, it almost seemed either too simplistic or too complicated, depending on what it was I was trying to do. Right. Um, Snapseed it's available for iOS and Android, I believe. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's got to be on Android if you recommended it to me. It's true. Um, it's very easy. They have some really nice presets, but also you can go through. You can do almost anything you want to it. Um, brightness saturation um light or the the color balance Mm -hmm. um different different selective areas of brightness and contrast you can you can even do overlays like um, the multiple exposures which is also a nice tip um i highly recommend that that's all i use now i don't even for any any um photo that i take not just beer yep The, the amount of tools it has is is crazy it's really good all right the next article up is bring on the brain freeze this is from GreeleyTribune.com. They say craft brewers are onto the problem of warming beers in the summer. Hey, here we are talking about warm beers during a photo session. Uh, this is something else. I should say the photos for this are really cool, too. It is very photogenic. So brewers are trying to figure out this whole thing about warming beers in the summer. And they have some great solutions to keep beer aficionados loyal to their community without stepping over the line into cocktail land, they say. Wiley Roots Brewing Company began dipping its toe in the pool, I guess the, <laughs> the proverbial pool, back in April uh, when it introduced lemon-lime slush. This isn't Sonic. This is, <laughs> this is a brewery oh, man. doing this. Part of what the brewery describes as their heavily fruited rotating sour series. There is one called Brewsicle from the brewery that yes, I know about. Yes, I've seen that. They those photos are so 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 good. It's not sl- quote unquote slushyized uh, like this one is here, but it seems very cool. I've had a uh, uh, rose soft serve before, and that's kind of a trip. Um, it not on the beer spectrum, but but still very good, kind of smooth and frothy. I have also had uh, naughty sauce ice cream, noble in anaheim makes a naughty sauce beer i believe yeah, it is a sauce. it's a white stout um and the ice cream for it is available on this was available at least a couple years ago in santa Ana at um playground <laughs> very good very 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 good anyway ice creams Slushes, super cold I, we beers. Should, we should probably point out too, just really quick, that um, speaking of slushes, today is July 11th. This is not going to be relevant for people listening, but today is 7-11. It is free slushy day. Hey, that's okay. All right. Yep. Stop Very by your jealous. Lo- stop by 7-Eleven. Get a free Slurpee. You guys don't have 7-Elevens out there? Uh, not in North Carolina. Not in my area. What? But I grew up with 7-Eleven. Yeah. I love slushies. And I very much like Coke slushies, cola slushies. And they're very delicious, and I'm jealous that uh, you guys have a seven on Slushy, Slurpee, you gotta, you have a, a preference? Oh, yeah, Slurpee for sure. Okay. There's right. also the Icy. Icy Isn't that what yeah. the AMPMs knock off? Yeah, but Slurpee with the dog, is yeah. that's the only one for oh, me. Oh, man. That's it. Anyway, basically take that, throw in beer. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> back, back to it, Kyle. Sorry. So overwhelming demand for more variations, more varieties, uh, grew when the brewery rented two slushy machines on weekends, prompting it to purchase a slushy machine of its own. Yes. So they're slushyizing beer, I guess. Oh my gosh. Uh, According to events coordinator Stephen Alexander, five slush flavors are in rotation with the slushy machine featuring a new slush variant 
on bi-weekly release days. Whichever variant is frozen isn't available on tap or in limited 16-ounce cans to go, so you got to get it only as the slushyized version. Uh, each slush variant is made with the fresh pureed or squeezed fruit, so it's a very fruit-forward that type sounds, thing. That, that sounds so good. This article also talks about uh, a bartender named Ryan uh, Frazier who explained a process he uses to freeze beer into a foam to give beer a frosty head. I don't know if you've seen this at Dodger Stadium, but a couple years ago, they had, I believe it was a Japanese beer that had a soft serve foam on top. You talked about this at some point. It sounded really good. So it's not available now, unfortunately, but uh, this bartender is making it at his bar. He says that this allows the beer to not be oxidized as it meets up with the warmer summer temperatures. The beer stays colder longer because it's not exposed to oxygen. Uh, Because the the head, the foam is thicker, thus kind of creating a seal. Uh, Yeah, the the beer itself. It's it's kind of yeah, like a like a cap. Yeah, kind of on top on top of the beer itself, and it's it's not allowing it to. oxidize with the air uh the beer is first subjected to the slushifying there's there's our word the beer is subject slushification yeah the beer is subjected to the slushifying process and it varies on on how they would do it uh you might see guinness sometimes making the perfect ice topper for a pint of guinness dry irish stout which is good it sounds pretty good i've i don't think i've ever had that uh, a stout with kind of like an ice cream topping on it be good like a Guinness float. You've ever had a Guinness float? Uh, yes, I have actually. I also have. Fantastic. It's it's good with um most dark like most dark beers. I feel like go pretty well with that. It's it's like a like the beer equivalent to an affogato. Oh, have I had one of those before? I uh I I, I, for, I forgot if I had one before i i'm not not quite sure uh you might also see you co- set that up mm-hmm. you took that minute to think about it so you could specifically set that up you acted stupid just so you get the joke in <laughs> you might also, i'm impressed <laughs> <laughs> you might also see uh koedo shikoku a uh craft schwartz beer uh comes in at five percent but that's sort of a, a japanese beer that has a very multi-character to it with sort of this f- whole you know frozen foam on top as a slushy sounds pretty good um the beer this beer in particular is made with sweet potatoes it's a black lager um and smoky yeah the schwartz beer style has that smoky mm-hmm. side to it bitter taste of cocoa things like that so it sounds Yum. sounds like it would be very well rounded with kind of this uh foamy like frozenness to it oh i want a slushy machine now it sounds really really good the frosty foam head created a sipper with flavor elements of iced hot chocolate for that Coeto beer. So it sounds all very good. I'm I'm interested to maybe try this. I want to get down to the brewery to try their beersicles. Mm-hmm. The brewsicles. I don't think they're slushifying them. Uh, no, but they look like it and they look really good. Yeah. 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 Lots of puree. Lots of fruit puree in there. So look for that if you are anywhere near Greeley, I guess. Uh that's all I have. Our last article for you this week comes from the drinkbusiness.com and it is Bex releases beer can shaped like a champagne flute. This one I thought was just so funny and perfect for our discussion here. Um, AB InBev owned German beer brand Bex uh, in partnership with creative agency uh, Service Plan 
has launched a new aluminum beer can, which is shaped like a champagne flute. Um, I highly recommend you go to the show notes, find the link and check it out first because you're going to get, um, I don't know, a good laugh out of this one. I think you'll be very, very surprised because the point at which I was surprised was I saw the champagne flute. It looks like a silver aluminum can in the shape of your classic, like long stemmed champagne flute. Fine. The point that got me was when it the camera slowly panned to the top of it and you see the pop top of the can. And <laughs> you're like, yeah. what? Same here. What? I, I think right it's now. clever. I think it is very well designed. I have seen, even at baseball stadiums, I have seen pop top wines. Yes. With the little stem. It's oh, really? Fli- with it's the stem? flipped okay. over. They'll pop it into the bottom and you'll get that wine stemmed whole glass look. It's plastic usually. So I, I find that with this, it's a lot classier, even though you're cracking open a, a, a literal aluminum can. It seems a lot classier than than what the wine folks are doing. I don't know. That's just me. I think the thing I want to know about the most is uh, production of these. Yes. I'm really curious to see how they do this. The new can uh, called Lebex was created by the Munich-based agency Service Plan um, in a bid to earn an enhanced premium perception because nothing says enhanced premium than a champagne flute. Beck started releasing its beer in cans in 1954, and the shape has remained largely unchanged. Um, This new sort of premium take on it, uh, the new cans are finished with brushed aluminum and with uh, laser and analog engravings forming the uh, beer label. Um, I I will say, though, that the the engraving and the aluminum um, is really, really nice. I think that more than the shape of the glass gives it a premium look. Um, I really like that. Uh, Bex and Service Plan claim that the cans are a first in the world of beer packaging, which I would have to agree with because I've never seen anything like this. Um, The inspiration behind the packaging was to bring canned beer to venues and events where it's not traditionally consumed. Um, As a result, the Lebex cans have undergone trials in art galleries, uh, classical music concerts, and other exclusive events in Germany. And uh, due to the overwhelming response, Bex is now considering launching the beer flutes globally. Oh my gosh, please, we have to see this. The thing is with this, uh, because they are one single piece of CNC'd aluminum, half of the container that these are sent over in is going to be air. Well, that, that, that was my big, when Ryan, you're like, um, I want to know, like the one thing I want to know is, and then I was thinking something, but you went completely different, like the production. I was thinking like, how much beer is actually in there? Mm. That's like what? Oh, that's, like half a sip? Yeah. That's a very good point. It's, it seems <laughs> it's, like it. It can't it's, be the same amount because they look like the size of a standard champagne flute. It does look like a tablespoon of beer. Yeah. But they are filled to the top, presumably. Um, it's yeah. like a, it's like a, one of the small Red Bulls. It looks like, could you christen a boat with Lebex? Ooh, <laughs> I don't think you're going to get the same effect. You'll get a dent more than a shatter. That's true. Okay. Yes. Very well built cans. Oh my gosh. Yeah. This will make this make shotgunning at a party so much classier. Uh, does it though? <laughs> <laughs> uh. Oh man. I, I don't know. I mean, it's. It as far as packaging goes, the originality is very cool. I agree with Ryan that like the etching and the laser engraving that definitely gives it something different. Um, especially I, again, we were talking earlier about texture. Um, I think that is always cool. Like engraving or embossing always kind of makes something a step up. But uh, 
I don't know. I look at it and honestly, I just kind of want to just chuckle to myself. Um, but admittedly, I do want to see it in person. It's a bit absurdist, right? Yeah. You, you, you take one, uh, type of alcohol and you throw it in the container for a very specific type of alcohol, right? A champagne flute. It's named after the type of drink you're supposed to put into it. Um, the same sort of thing I think is happening with the ridiculousness of IPA glasses or stout glasses or stuff like that. Right. If you started to package wines, a red wine, a white wine in a, uh, IPA glass, it would look, otherworldly it would look strange but you're gonna tell me that it's considered upscale to have this in say an art gallery opening as next to a glass of champagne oh totally because see the thing is i'll i'll take the becks here you go sir we also talked uh briefly about sort of the the classic designs right the traditional uh, and the tradition of classic beers and what they look like the fact that the Beck's logo hasn't really changed that much since the, the 50s it, it is just what you what you expect to see and when you break that expectation it it becomes interesting it's it's almost art for the sake of art it, it doesn't have any true purpose other than to be itself and i think that's kind of yes this is a drinking vessel but it just sort of is and and we we accept it and can say whatever about it, but it doesn't doesn't change the fact that it, it exists. Let me throw this into the ring, though. What if this particular packaging, Lebex, creates um, crossover drinkers? People that would normally be drinking champagne in an art gallery. Maybe they'll pick up the Bex this time. Maybe that's sort of a gateway into... To the beer world. I think that is what a lot of beer design does. Maybe they'll it, pick it up by accident. It, <laughs> <laughs> Why does my champagne have a pop top? <laughs> I think that that is the it's case. It's a very good point. But that's the case for a lot of stuff that we've talked about today. It's brewers are leveraging stuff like Instagram culture to bring in folks who maybe would never try craft beer into the craft beer world. And I, and yes, while, uh, while Lebex is sort of targeting a very, very specific crowd of, uh, folks who would maybe drink champagne and be at an art gallery versus the entire billions of people who are on Instagram. I think it just says a lot about the importance of design when it comes to introducing people to craft beer. Now it's time to answer some of your questions. Is there anything you've wanted to know about Untapped or beer in general? Send over your questions using the hashtag AskUntapped on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. This week's question is coming to us from Matt W. on Twitter. He asks us, how long can you keep beer in a growler, opened and or unopened? Let's take it from a personal level first. How long have you kept a growler for? What's the longest that you're kind of willing to to take unopened at least? Well, I mean, me personally, I think I've kept a growler for, I don't know, four or five days, I think. Okay. Um, I'm not sure exactly how long, but I definitely kept it longer than I should have. Hmm. Because mm-hmm. I couldn't go through it fast enough. Sure, sure. And this is for, uh, for both growlers and crowlers, I would say. Uh, Crowlers, I feel a lot safer keeping for longer. So I, I, I would have kept a crowler for weeks just thinking that this is a big old can. It's like a keg, but with the 
the beer that came from the tap, it poured into a, a, a can. It's not pressurized so far as I know, but it is just sort of a pop top vessel for it. I think we'll, we should also elaborate onto this or, um, well, we should cover um, growlers and crawlers since the question was growlers, but crawlers are very prevalent. And I'm seeing almost every brewery now doing crawlers, some even more so than growlers themselves. Yes. Yep. Yep. And a lot of times the, I will go for the crawler before a growler because of the volume of yes. the beer. Uh, 32 ounces versus 64 or 128. Yeah. I, I also find myself getting crawlers uh, depending on the ABV. So if I'm getting a, if I had a really good Belgian triple at a brewery I was at, I'll, I'll take a crowler home, but, um, 64 ounces of Belgian triple, not going to do it for you. That's, that's a very interesting <laughs> point though. Because Put the straw in it. When you, when you think about a triple, <laughs> I think glass, I instantly think glass. I don't want that thing touching aluminum. Are you kidding? It's, it's a lot about like the, the interesting, to, the to go vessel. We did. And what's, we did talk about putting things in glass bottles versus cans. I think, um, a couple weeks ago, I was all cans. I, I remember saying very, very specifically can me up, but, but I don't, I, I don't know. It just seems weird for a triple to be in a can. I know. Yeah. So starting with the growler here, um, I did find something really quick. Uh, this is growler one Oh one on a guide if a growler is tightly sealed and remains unopened and chilled, uh, the beer stays fresh for several days, even longer if the bar has a filling system that injects carbon dioxide into the growler. To kind of act as a, a preservative or to, or keep, the to keep it all carbonated up in there. Yeah. Um, once mm-hmm. it's open, the beer can stay fresh for about 36 hours before it starts to go flat. Interesting. Now, I've seen not just breweries doing this. There are whole systems of like <laughs> stay fresh crawlers. Growler Works, I think, in Portland makes one where they are little CO2 cartridges that you screw into the top of the growler and it'll keep the whole growler pressurized. It's not a not a sponsor, but it is kind of one of those systems where if you're looking to keep that beer for longer or I guess, quote unquote, put it on tap, uh, you can do that with with that type of system. That's pretty cool. As far as the crawlers go, um, according to bonappetit.com, crawlers can actually keep their beers fresh for about a month unless you decide to play football with it, they say. <laughs> Sounds dangerous. I think if you shake it around a bit, you're going to release that carbonation and it's uh, going to lose some of it. But if you keep it nice and sealed and everything goes well, um, that's going to last you probably about a month. So growler, you've got maybe a handful of days, 36 hours if you've opened it. Um, as far as the crawler goes, you've got maybe about a month. Obviously, if you open the crawler, it's just like popping open a can, so you don't have long there. All right, show notes are available at podcast.untap.com. And if you have any questions for us or you've got feedback, be sure to connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. It's at Untapped Everywhere. And be sure to also send in your questions using the hashtag AskUntapped. I know it sounds a lot like at Untapped. I've had just a little internal monologue this morning about like, they kind of sound the same. So it's hashtag ask untapped and at untapped everywhere. Thank you for clarifying that. That was very thorough. Um, As always, if you have a second, uh, please head over to Apple podcasts and rate the show. We greatly appreciate that. Um, All the ratings help us climb the charts, which means more people will find our lovely little podcast and uh, start listening. Um, and if you have a little more time, we would greatly appreciate it if you could write a review on Apple Podcasts as well. Um, we love seeing the feedback, positive, negative, anything that you want to say. We love to read it, integrate it, 
and make the show whatever you want. Until next week. Cheers. Cheers.